Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Caroline Connell, Director of Investment Management from Tilney's London office, and I'm talking with Ben Sieg Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, generally about how we feel the start of 2021 has gone. We're going to touch on a couple of topical issues um, and finish off with with talking about um, the most recent Bank of England um, meeting. Snowy here in London today, but um, we're recording the podcast from our homes today on Tuesday, the 9th of February. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, we're over a month into the new year, we're still in lockdown. Um, how do you think, from the market's perspective, how do you think the, the start of the year has gone? Thank you. Well, yes, absolutely. As, as the, the year has started, large as we talked about, I think, over the last couple of podcasts, markets are very much focused on the potential for recovery driven by the vaccine. But some of the risks within that and some of the concerns around mutations, vaccine efficacy, distribution, some of the points that we were just a little concerned might add to to the bumps. That's what we've really seen come through. And, you know, we're only just over a month in. Already we saw the year started with a strong surge led by the UK. Uh, UK equities up five and a half percent by the middle of January. But then there's some concerns over vaccine developments and distribution came to the fore. We saw markets largely give most pretty much all of that actually back. But then towards the end of January and certainly the start of February, we've seen a fresh bounce in equities led by the US generally in terms of developed markets. So now global equities are up around four and a half percent, UK lagging a little bit at 1.4 percent. So that positivity, but with bumps as markets worry a little bit about developments around vaccines. What is worth highlighting, emerging markets have had a very strong start to the year, up 8.4 percent for the year to date. And I think there's some interesting points uh, around emerging markets. It's something we're certainly thinking about. Now, whilst equities have been on a little bit of an upward trajectory, core sovereign bonds have been going the other way and they've been gently selling off. Uh, So yields, and recall that yields move in the opposite direction to prices. Yields on 10-year UK government bonds are up 27 basis points to 0.47%, whilst 10-year US Treasury yields are up 23 basis points to 1.15. And again, that sort of tying in a little bit with the reflationary theme that we're seeing. The other area worth touching on is oil. We've seen Brent crude oil now just about back into the $60 range. Hasn't been there since January 2020. Uh, So oil really is markets focus on the the long-term recovery potential and creeping back to normality. Oil is a classic risk on asset has started to to achieve a little bit more strength. Again, breaking through that psychologically important threshold. The only other thing perhaps to highlight is sterling. And in terms of the currency, sterling continues to strengthen. It's up 0.8% for the year so far, 
up to $1.38 against the US dollar. So that sort of reflationary theme is what we've seen as a key event for the start of 2021. So thanks for that, Ben. Clearly a, a lot of things that we can touch on. Um, what I wanted to just first talk about is some of the questions that I'm talking to clients about and you, you raised there about markets having done well and we've we keep seeing um, headlines of hitting all-time highs. What's your feeling on where valuations are? The valuation discussion is, well, it's always a live discussion, but it's very topical at the moment. And it's frankly a very difficult one to get a huge grip on. When we look at valuations, we take obviously for, for simplicity share prices and we compare it to some fundamental, quite often earnings or cash flow or, or the book value. But at the moment, it's very difficult to gauge those traditional measures, price to earnings ratios, for example, aren't particularly meaningful in the short term because we've had a, effectively around the world government mandated economic shutdowns through 2020 earnings have collapsed because businesses have been forced to close. So those earnings figures aren't particularly reliable. If we look to this year, yes, there's some recovery, but we're still not looking at normality for some period. So if you look on those simple measures, a lot of markets do look very expensive, but perhaps that's a little bit skewed. If you look slightly further out, we can look to next year's earnings where we do expect some level of normalization. There we start to see a few more details. The US still looks pretty expensive even next year. The UK, though, is a little bit more, more normalized. And I think that probably reflects broadly where we are. The US has historically commanded these high valuations. Remember, valuation can fall through two mechanisms. Either share prices can fall, and obviously that's not ideally what we want as investors, or the earnings figure can come up to, to, to meet those higher expectations embedded in valuations. And it's certainly clear in the US with a lot of the, the mega cap tech stocks, they do have strong growth prospects. So just because a market is expensive doesn't necessarily mean that prices are fall, going to fall or likely to fall. It could mean that maybe some optimisms in the price already in the price and some of those earnings need to, to catch up a little bit. So what I would say if you look on most of those measures, price to earnings, price to free cash flow, all of the different permutations, most markets look some different shade of expensive, very expensive to just a little expensive, depending on the market and the metric. But there are other ways to do valuations. And if you compare them to something like government bonds, which, as we said, when the yields are very low, government bonds are pretty expensive. If you compare potential ret expected returns, uh, potential on equities versus government bonds, uh, another way of talking about the equity risk premium, i.e. how much more reward you expect for holding equities over bonds, then with government bonds incredibly low, actually equities look a little bit more compelling value. We've talked before about the different feedback mechanisms through discounts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, suffice to say, when interest rates are very low and you expect them to remain low and you have elements such as quantitative easing, that tends to push valuations a little bit higher overall. So, I mean, in summary, I think valuation can be useful over, over the long term. At the moment, markets look a little expensive generally, but there are prop pockets of value within that. And I think it's important not to get too hung up. Valuations tend to resolve over a period of, of many years, best part of a decade in some cases. So, you know, I think the growth outlook is relatively solid. If markets were cheap and the growth outlook was solid, people would argue it's almost a 
no brainer. That's not where we are. Valuations don't look all that compelling, but there's growth potential coming through. So I think the outlook calls for more nuance. It doesn't necessarily mean we need to be overly cautious at this stage. And actually, one of the areas you mentioned earlier that had done well for the start of this year is looking at emerging markets. Um, that's an area that you know we are seeing more interest in. What's your thoughts on kind of investment within Asia Pacific and emerging markets more generally, especially since we've seen a bit of a weaker dollar over the last um, few months? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, emerging markets in Asia Pacific are looking increasingly interesting. It's it's a factor we've actually highlighted over the last eighteen months or so as, as these markets do have have greater potential. I think there's several bits to sort of unpack from that. Firstly, I think we'll recognise in the long term the demographic shifts that we see in uh, in emerging markets and Asia Pacific do make a, a fairly compelling long term investment case. The challenge is how you tap into that, whether that is investing in companies listed in emerging markets, or whether you can play it through. For example, some of the consumer brands that you get uh, in Western economies. So there is detail there. In the short term as well, Asia Pacific and emerging markets tend to do relatively well when you have the the global economy recovering. They're they're a bit of a geared play on the global recovery. And as we see that coming through, I think that is a positive environment, particularly as emerging markets have been unloved for, for quite a while. That said, you do need to be fairly selective uh, in, in which markets and companies you look at. We talk about Asia and EM, but obviously that's a huge area. And even within emerging markets, you've got areas of, of South America and, and other regions that are in very tight lockdown and are struggling to control their COVID-19 outbreak. You've got areas such as China and, and a, a lot of other regions in Asia who are back close to normality. So it's difficult to just talk about them broadly. There are certainly pockets of, of interest. And as you highlight, a helping factor for that has been the the weakening of the US dollar. A lot of emerging market companies uh, are reliant on the dollar. They tend to have debt issued in dollars. They tend to use the dollar as the international uh, trade currency. And as we've seen that the dollar weaken, but also US interest rates fall, that's naturally a boon to um, emerging markets as well. So reasons to be positive. But again, I think selectivity will be key. And whilst we're talking about um, selective investment, um, I think you've talked about Bitcoin recently, but but just talking about another topical company that's um, clearly been in the press a lot recently. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's happened with GameStop? Yes, absolutely. Now, I've been asked an awful lot about GameStop and GameStop, uh, and it is a fascinating a fascinating event to, to watch. It's been all over the news. Just to, to briefly update people that aren't aware, GameStop is a very small company in the US. It's uh, It has physical stores where they lend out games. It's a loss-making company. Uh, and it went from around $20 at the start of the year per share, um, and it surged up to a high of $348. And all of this was driven by a Reddit forum. So Reddit is, is a discussion forum. A large number of retail investors um, effectively found out that hedge funds were shorting these stocks. So that means position to benefit from the price falling. And it's been suggested that they sought to cause some havoc by pushing up the price of uh, pushing up the price of this stock, so, supposedly to, to inflict pain on the hedge funds. And obviously, for those hedge funds involved, it was very painful. 
and they enacted what's, what's effectively called the short squeeze, which means obviously as the price goes up, then uh, the hedge funds take losses, but then it gets even worse because as the hedge funds look to try and close out those losses, that pushes the price uh, ever ever higher. And we talked last time a little bit on Bitcoin and reminded people, you know, the most of stock can ever go down is 100%, but in theory, it can go up many multiples of that. Uh, and that caused absolute chaos. Uh, lots of people asking about it. It subsequently, in the last few days, actually collapsed. So, you know, that 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 valuation has fallen 82 or share price has fallen 82, 83%. So it's now valued at around $60. $60. So I think you know a lot of that story has dissipated. And when we were just talking about valuations, well, it's hard to, to value this company given that it's, it's loss-making and not a particularly attractive business model, hence why the hedge funds were shorting it. But I think it, it does raise a, a few interesting points that's probably worth talking about, um, that we're talking about internally and worth sharing with clients. This is really another aspect, a little bit like the oil price last year, where it temporarily fell to, to minus 35. Once you get into some of the more niche parts of the market and some of the, the, the smaller parts, you do have these rather strange market structures. And it's one of the reasons we try and avoid illiquid assets. If a price is illiquid, there's not many people trading in it. The price can swing around very aggressively and it can be taken advantage of. You need to remember the price of a share is just what someone else will pay for it. And all shares basically trade at, at the last price that it was exchanged at. So when you do have these relatively small um, share bases with not many, very many investors and you don't really have deep markets, then you can have this noise pushed around. It is not really an issue for us. Obviously, we've not had any exposure to, to GameStop either directly or, or through any of the funds that we hold. And that's true of the vast majority of professional investors across the UK and actually across the whole world. This was more of, a, of an interesting aside than reality. Where it does have an impact, though, is it does, it does impinge upon market sentiment. And in the short term, hedge funds, absolute return vehicles, and areas such as that can have quite a lot of impact on, on markets in the short term. And even though most hedge funds didn't hold these stocks, what it did do is sort of raise this, this spectre of Reddit, uh, Reddit attacks or whatever they're going to be called now. And I think when hedge funds get spooked, they start de-risking. So they start reducing their positions. Even those who are exposed were worried about some of their short positions, worried if they came under attack next. And others as well, just looking to rein everything in, pull their risk positions off on both sides and scale back. And we did see that having some short-term impact on the market. So I don't think it has... That the event itself has a major impact. But what it does do, I think, is, is have an impact on risk sentiment. So not something we can ignore entirely, but I think most of these events are relatively short-term. Again, this is about short-term, uh, aggressive and unusual trading activity rather than the longer-term investing that, that we engage in. Thanks, Ben. That's really interesting. Um, clearly a lot to think about uh, with that. Um, and talking about... Uh, what's happening kind of at the moment, I mean, to move back to what you were talking about earlier with the other part of the market, because we, we tip, well, we spend a lot of time talking about equities, but clearly a, another important factor is um, the fixed income within the portfolio or bonds. And we were talking before recently about uh, the Bank of England meeting um, and what was discussed there. Uh, would, you be, would you like to talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Bank of England met recently, uh, obviously didn't change 
policy. But what was most interesting is some of the reported comments around negative interest rates. And we've obviously highlighted before, you've got your conventional monetary policy, which is just raising and, and, and cutting interest rates. Now we're into the realm of unconventional monetary policy, which is quantitative easing, money printing effectively. Um, and the Bank of England did highlight a small point around negative interest rates. And I think that was very interesting. The, the Bank of England and the US Federal Reserve have always been pretty against negative interest rates. They've suggested that the lower bound, i.e. the lowest you can cut rates, is at near but just above zero. We interpret that as sort of 12.5%, you know, the, the ballpark that we're really in now. Um, but there was a comment from the Bank of England effectively um, suggesting that tasking itself with ensuring that banks could deal with negative interest rates if uh, if that was necessary. I think that's been really interesting. That's been picked up in, in several places. What I would say, the Bank of England has been very clear. It has no intention of implementing negative interest rates imminently. Um, and I think really that the Bank of England and the Fed have always been clear they want to keep all of the options on the table. And negative interest rates, even if it's a policy they wouldn't necessarily choose to follow uh, willingly, it, it's worth having in there if they if they have to. And I think the, the point to the banks was more around making sure they had the systems to deal with it. When you switch from low but still just about positive interest rates to negative interest rates, the key, the key shifting factor there is you know, suddenly you go from crediting accounts to debiting accounts. So I think a lot of it was just checking they have the infrastructure to, if they had to, debit deposit accounts. I mean, instinctively, it seems unlikely that they would want to impose that on retail investors. There's not much appetite for that. But we have seen, for example, in Europe, where corporate accounts, you know, big big corporations that, that, that should really understand these things, they have had negative interest rates charged on their accounts. Some of the aspects like you know, what's it mean for, for tracker mortgages, and things like that. So a lot of it is about the, t the, the plumbing. So I think the Bank of England is keen to keep all of those options on the table. What I would say, though, I think events would have to deteriorate quite significantly before the Bank of England had to consider negative interest rates. There's still a lot further they can go with quantitative easing. Obviously, it's in effect at the moment. If things deteriorated a little bit, they could increase the size of that. They could, they could increase the scope as well. At the moment, it's bonds, selected corporate bonds. They could broaden that out. They could even look at other instruments. So th there's still a lot more they can do with quantitative easing in terms of size and scope. They could also look at what's sometimes called helicopter money or more direct funding of fiscal policy. And whilst we have monetary and fiscal policy working together, I think negative interest rates are, are still some way off and not something that, that the Bank of England will be keen to pursue anytime soon. But I think it's interesting they're clearly highlighting the need to have these tools available should they need it for the future. Thanks, Ven. So I guess it's uh, the Bank of England's way of doing a bit of forward guidance in case they do need to use it. Um, so that, that was helpful. And just, just on a last point, one, one area that I find very topical and is clearly gathering momentum um, is around uh, responsible investment, sustainable investment. Um, and clearly it's something that Tilney we take seriously. We've, we've recently become signatories of PRI, Principles for Responsible Investment. Just on the investment side, have you got some thoughts on that that you'd like to share? Absolutely. So sustainable investing, I think, is, is a really important direction that the entire industry is heading in. And obviously, it's something that we take very seriously. 
we have sustainable ranges where we focus very deeply um, on that. And sustainable has been a tailwind for the last year or so. Um, but I think it's likely to remain a positive feature uh, and a major theme for, for the foreseeable future, possibly you know, for, for, the, for the rest of, well, certainly my investing life. And there is this big shift, and it's not just around changes in values, though that's a key driver, investors wanting more uh, sustainable products, but it comes from the other side as well. There is a, a very strong base investment case for investing sustainably as we see policy shifts around the world, we increasingly see governments looking to impose um, regulations on areas such as such as fossil fuels. So I think you've both got this top-down theme. You've also got this bottom-up demand. It means that sustainable investing really has to be something that, that we consider for the foreseeable future. And because it is such a structural shift, I think we could really see that as a major regime change in investment markets. So I think it is important for those that are interested, there is a strong investment case. It is also about investors aligning their personal values with their financial assets. So it is certainly something that, that's worth considering. Um, and as you highlight, we have a conference on that. And I think that'd be a, a really valuable point for, for investors, clients, listeners to hear a little bit more and to really stimulate some of the thinking there are so many different aspects it not it's not just a question of do i do sustainable or not there's so many different ways to look at sustainable the different ways to to have a sustainable portfolio uh, i think that that conference will be really fascinating thanks ben it definitely feels like there's momentum behind it so whereas at the moment you know you have traditional investment and sustainable is a separate piece but i think over time it will become one um, and just on the conference, that's towards the end of the month on the 25th of February, and you can sign up to it through the website. So if, if anyone's interested, it's available there to sign up to. Um, so that, that closes all my questions today. So thank you, Ben, for that. Thank you for your comments. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.